You've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes with Jerry Gordon. Hello, friends. I'm Dave Robison, and you're listening to a special showcase episode of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes With. Uh, Sadly, today I am flying solo. My accustomed co-host, Brian... Uh, uh, was called away for emergency baby duties, not baby being born, but that whole pre-baby being born thing. So it's just going to be me and my guest host for this 20 minutes with, and allow me, dear friends, to to introduce you, to warm you up to our guest host. Um, you've heard us speak often on the show about literary alchemy, about the blending and transformation of ideas and concepts into splendid tales. Well, personally, I think our guest host really needs to add literary alchemist to his business card. He is a subversive weaver of disparate threads into a single tapestry of awesomeness. Now, he was raised in the iconic small-town Midwest, where no one would ever dream of becoming a writer. But in his house, the dinner table was apparently like the Roman Colosseum for contemporary political and cultural opinion, where anything could be discussed, debated, and deconstructed. Now, add to this intellectually stimulating environment the following facts. A. He saw Star Wars in the theater at the age of three, and, like so many of us, was completely blown away. B. He read Stephen King's The Mist while trapped in in a house during a storm at the age of 13, and C, he was a DJ for a radio station at 14, and by 16, he was running the station, all right? Combine these facts together, and you have set the stage for a frothing, specfic renegade. Now, he went to college to become a broadcaster, a fairly fringe for a Midwestern boy, but he sensed that something was off. His creative daemon was goading him down a different path. Now, turning off that path, however, uh, he was lost as how to proceed. And in search of inspiration, our guest host entered the one place that so many of us revere as a sacred temple, the library. He started plucking books off the shelves, inviting the muses to reveal a path. And when he looked down, in his hands were bios of movie directors, screenwriters, and fan fiction writers. And the way became clear. He was going to be a writer and switched his major immediately to English. Now, like so many creative spirits, a single note or color cannot possibly embody the full spectrum of their interests. And in addition to being a fiction author, our guest host is also an editor, college instructor, computer programmer, and occasional grad student who dreams about an apartment in Paris. Now, his works have appeared in Indie Review Magazine, The Midnight Diner, Apex Magazine, and Shroud Magazine. His editorial debut was with Maurice Broadus, who we recently had the pleasure of welcoming on this show as a guest host. Now, Maurice had conceived of an anthology that deals with the many facets of faith, but he was also brokering a deal with Angry Robots for his Knights of Breton Court trilogy. Now, our guest host very helpfully recommended several writers who could help Maurice as co-editor. Of course, during this conversation, they both realized how well they worked together, which ultimately led to our guest host being co-editor of Dark Faith, 
an anthology released by Apex Publications. The anthology was very well received, securing a Bram Stoker nomination and leading to the recently released follow-up, Dark Faith Invocations. Now, friends, you've heard of post-apocalyptic stories, right? Well, our guest host is currently working on a pre-apocalyptic series of novels where he will cheerfully walk us through the end of the world and beyond. The first of the series, Breaking the World, is due out from Apex Publications in 2013. He also has a story in the upcoming Vampires Don't Sparkle, uh, a charity anthology to benefit breast cancer research to be released in early 2013 in honor of Sarah J. Larson. And, as if all of this awesomeness was not enough, our guest host was also once a Klingon extra on Star Trek The Next Generation, where he died a quick and glorious death. So, so, dear friends, please join me in welcoming on the Skype line and to the big chair at the round table, Mr. Jerry Gordon. Jerry, thank you so much for making the time to join us here on the round table. We appreciate it, sir. Absolutely my pleasure. Excellent. How was that? Was that a fairly representative bio for, for Jerry Gordon? I, I like literary alchemist. Ah, see? And, and that, we don't have a copyright on that, so feel free to add that to your curriculum vitae. I, I, might, I might combine that with my Twitter handle, ne'er-do-well. <laughs> literary alchemist. And see, there's that whole renegade, rogue, subversive, genre masher thing working for you. Um, and let's get into this, Jerry. I want to I seize the opportunity of my 20 minutes with you, so I'm just going to set our timer here, who will promptly ignore, but that's what we do here at the Roundtable. Um, Jerry, I'm looking over your canon of work, both on the shelf and soon to be. Um, I, I noticed words like David Koresh, FBI, overpopulation, global politics, religion, science, White House, Congress, Archbishop, all of these, these things. Now, writers have a very broad palette to draw from for their stories, and you really seem to have found a rich set of colors for your palette in the modern world. And I was wondering if you could share with our listeners why those topics draw your attention as a storyteller, and, and what have you found some of the challenges to be of incorporating those themes into your stories? Well, like you, like you said in the intro, I was kind of raised at a dinner table where all the... Uh, conversations you were supposed to avoid they were at the forefront so uh, to the to the point that i can i can at least remember one fist fight at the dinner table oh my god yeah yeah <laughs> it was the roman coliseum yes exactly holy crap so uh you know i was i actually was was raised in a fairly politically active family so politics have always been interesting to me okay apparently the end of the world is quite interesting to me <laughs> apparently. Uh, i keep writing about it <laughs> But why is that, do you think? You know, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, I was influenced uh, a great deal by Richard Matheson. Right. Uh, and I am legend. Uh, there, there was a point we moved a lot when I was a kid. And invariably, if you move a lot, you come to discover that in some places you're extremely popular and others you're not. <laughs> yes. And uh, at some point we moved and it was a short time and there was just no one around. And that isolation uh, that I felt as a kid at that point really merged well with Matheson and the idea of being the last person left on Earth. Ah, okay. You know, that, that kind of you against the world kind of thing. Sure. And, uh, 
you know, I, that's always interested me. Like you said in the, in the introduction, I, uh, I did read Stephen King's The Mist uh, in the middle of a tropical storm, uh, <laughs> isolated without power by, by flashlight. Chilling. Yeah. Um, but there's so much, I mean, I mean, you know, when you look at spec fic, and I know that's a very broad palette to, to lay on the table, but, but there are people that, that diverge that, that use, I guess, the modern world, the contemporary world as, as a bare sketch of a, of, of a framework for their stories and really infuse, uh, their own aesthetic to, to tell their tale. And it seems like you, Jerry, are, are actually drawing very heavily on that and using those as, as major set pieces and cornerstones for, for the stories that you're telling. Are there, are there challenges in, in trying to take something that people resonate with so strongly and, and embedding them in your tales? Oh, absolutely. And, uh, especially, uh, with breaking the world, which is the book that'll be out next year, uh, it, it was a huge challenge to take on uh, the character of David Koresh and the uh, 51-day standoff between the FBI and uh, the Branch Davidian Church. To, to give you a little idea, you know, kind of with what you're talking about, how that came about, I was actually traveling cross-country uh, listening to NPR, and I listened to a, a story from a forensic anthropologist named Emily Craig, uh, who had put out a book called uh, Teasing Secrets from the Dead, and she was one of the forensic anthropologists on the scene for Waco. And one of the, just these little interesting tidbits that you hear that just stick with you. Um, while the uh, Branch Davidian Church burned to the ground, the majority of the people in the church died from contact gunshot wounds to the forehead. Oh, wow which that just really stuck with me. Sure. And so a couple of years later, I was writing a post-apocalyptic story uh, called Cities of Refuge for Apex Magazine. And I, the story basically takes someone who doesn't believe in anything religious at all and tries to take them from not believing to believing that they could potentially be the chosen one, you know, to save everyone. Okay. And... You don't have a lot of space with a short story, so I needed a real shorthand way to devastate somebody emotionally with religion. And so I just thought about that interview with Emily Craig, and I thought, you know, if you were a kid in that church, how, how much more devastating could you get if you had survived? Oh, yeah. So I used that as shorthand, and the story went over really, really well. And fast forward another year or so, and everyone who would come up to me, I left it on kind of a cliffhanger, and I assumed everyone would want to know what happens next. But for as many people as I got who wanted to know what happens next, I had a lot of people who wanted to know about the Branch Davidians and the end of the world part. Oh, wow. And so many, so many uh, television shows and movies and books that we have today that deal with the apocalypse they kind of skip over that part. Right. You know, the actual ending of the world part, which to me seems like you're really missing out. Sure. I mean, that's, that was the drama inside the compound. These, these people were convinced of, of, of the end of the world. Right, right. And so I, I basically came up with this idea that in a nutshell was taking a trio of kids 
who weren't true believers. They didn't believe the, the they didn't share the Branch Davidians' beliefs, but they were teenagers and their parents did. Okay. So they were there basically caught between David Koresh and the FBI in the middle of this standoff. And uh, as you said, the Branch Davidians are a uh, apocalyptic church, uh, apocryphal church. Right. And, uh, you know, I, the idea that I had was, you know, what would happen if I set a book in the middle of that standoff and the end of the world actually started happening? <laughs> and not, not, the end of the world that, not the end of the world that the Branch Davidians are looking for, but the end of the world starts happening in the middle of the book. Oh, man. So you have these three teenagers who they, they don't believe, uh, which is a good entry point for a reader because the reader's not going to believe. Right. Uh, but they do live there, so you get a window into what things were like on the inside, which we didn't when the event happened. And you get to see these kids who really aren't adults yet, who haven't taken control of their lives. And the story is basically the apocalypse happening to them and forcing them to become adults. Okay. Now, I, 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 don't, want, I don't want to tease any spoilers from you, but is, is the end of the world related in any way to the Branch Davidians and the events that are going down there, or is this a, an external event that happens coincidentally? That question is left unanswered by the end of the book, but it is answered in the series. <laughs> so tune in, friends. Yes. By the book, you'll find the answer. Awesome. So, so now, in, in, in taking such an emotionally charged environment, at least for, the, for your older readers, uh, the younger readers, it'll be history, but for many of us, uh, uh, we lived through watching the TV coverage uh, of, of that tragic event. How, how are you dealing with the emotions that are going to be attendant to at least half of your readership, I would think, uh, in, in dealing with an, a, a topic so fraught with emotional peril. Right, right. And it, it's, it's uh, you know, when I came up with the idea, like I said, people kept coming up and asking me, and it, it got the wheels turning. And when I came up with an idea, and I was talking really informally to a publisher about it, and they became very interested, all of a sudden I had to write it. Sure. And when you're doing a short story and you put in a throwaway line that somebody was raised in that, that situation, you can kind of get away with no research. Sure. But when you suddenly have to have David Koresh and it has to sound like David Koresh and it has to be basically David Koresh, all of a sudden it's like, crap, I've got to do a lot of research. Yeah. So, so th thankfully, it, it's been actually 20 years since that event happened. Right. Uh, so, Which makes me feel old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I also approach the book basically uh, as kind of a crossover. If you're an adult and you have knowledge of those events, you remember those events, sure. you're going to read it one way. And if you're, if you're not old enough to remember, then really it's going to be more about the character struggle for you. Okay. Uh, so, you know, there's something there for adults, there's something there for teenagers. Which kind of informs you as a writer, too, because now you, you have the, the dual burden of not only crafting a fairly authentic recreation of those events, but also populating it with, with characters that stand without the crutch of history supporting them. They have to stand on their own. Right, and actually I wrote the first 50 pages of the book and threw it away. <laughs> as, I, as I understand it, many people do. 
in, in my case, the uh, the first fifty pages, uh, I was hewing very very strictly to history. Mm, okay. Uh, there are because it's twenty years later. There have been congressional investigations. Sure. Uh, there are survivors that have written books. There are local townspeople who have done interviews. So you, you, we're pretty much at a point where you actually know everything that happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so uh, the book essentially is kind of an alternative history thriller that, that moves towards the apocalypse. Uh, and for the historical end, I, I, I was trying to be very, very close historically. And it's too many people. And it's too much going on. And, it, and really what I had to arrive at was let's step back. Let's build some characters that the readers can really grab onto, you know, that they'll, mm-hmm. that they'll want to, you know, follow through this journey. Sure. And then uh, let's try and be close to history, but more emotionally close. Okay. Focusing on the smaller story within the larger one. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, the, the book actually begins with the FBI raid. And the FBI raid is fairly close to factual, but you just start condensing people and, and events to, to try and give it more of a dramatic flavor. Sure. And it uh, certainly starts off with a bang. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's action right there. Well, and that's, that's what, that's what hooked the publisher right there. You know, I, sure. I, I mentioned that I was going to work on it. I had, a, I had three months in my schedule to work, but I didn't have a project. And he said, well, where would you start with that? And I told him, and he just got a big grin on his face and said, go on. <laughs> you had me at hello. Yes. <laughs> Very yeah. cool. Uh, but no, it, it, it's a huge burden. And actually, uh, I mean, there are law enforcement officials who died uh, as a result of the standoff. Right. Um, there are a large number of innocent women and infants who died. Uh, in, in the original standoff. And the, the story takes a different turn in, in my book because the apocalypse is actually going to happen. Right. Uh, but I felt a responsibility to be emotionally truthful about what happened. Sure. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Jerry Gordon after this brief promotional break. You wrote a book or you're writing a book, and you've decided to walk the path of the self-published author. Now what? You need Indie Author Marketing Info. That's what. IndieAuthorMarketing.info is the new community from MWS Media and creator Matthew Wayne Selznick, where indie authors and service providers learn from each other. Join for free at IndieAuthorMarketing.info, and we'll see you there. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Jerry Gordon. Now, let me let me ask you, Jerry, I, I don't necessarily, there are other things I want to discuss, but this is just too fascinating. Um, uh, using that as the foundation, using the Branch Davidian conflict as, as the opening scene and the foundation and the background for your, for your protagonists, you've got a, this is, you're, you're sp- uh, spinning this out as a trilogy, correct? Uh, at minimum. At minimum, okay. Yeah. Is is there is that foundation going to be sustained throughout the trilogy, or or what is it about this particular aspect of history? If it's not going to be sustained, well, actually, let's let's focus on that question. Is that going to be sustained throughout uh, the series, or are you going to explore beyond that? Uh, well, thankfully, here this is where 
the fact that I wrote a story, a short story that occurs much later, was was invaluable as I was considering how to plot it out. Okay. Because I kind of knew where it would be two, three books down the road. Right. Uh, which is a much different place. So, um, you know, my, my, my joke about the book is that it's a, it's a book about growing up, falling in love, and surviving the apocalypse. <laughs> you know, which, mainly surviving the apocalypse. Which, which every, every teenager needs to deal with and wrestle with, I think. Uh, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> On some I, level. I have a good friend who's who's a big Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan. Ah, uh, yes. Who is? And uh, I, I love Joss Whedon. I, I love the show. And she was kind of noodling around for what this book was about without getting too many details. And I said, well, you, you know how Buffy and her friends, every season they stop the apocalypse? And I said, this book, if you imagine that none of them have any special powers and the whole goal is just to survive it. Which, which, which increases the stakes because nobody has special powers. The dangers are very real. Death is very real and so on. Right, right. It, it's all very real world. Okay. Uh, the, the, the only, really the speculative element of the book is that we start diverting from history and the world starts to go through an apocalypse. Okay. Well, and let me let, let's pull back a little bit from this, Jerry, and let me let me ask you. Um, you've you've written short stories, you've edited anthologies, you've 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 written novels. Um, so you've you've got a sense of of pretty much every aspect of the options available to a writer in in the contemporary market, anyway. Sure. Um, I'm curious. What do you consider to be your greatest strength or asset as a writer? And what do you do to foster that in, in your daily life or in your writing? That's a really good question. <laughs> uh, I, I would say that there are two things. Uh, one, I would have a difficulty putting a finger on how I do that, and the other I could probably explain. Okay. Um, I've been told by people that I work with that I'm exceedingly good uh, with structure and design and flow. Okay. So the, the, the building of something that's going to be compelling, you know, the skeleton of it, uh, I, I seem to be really, really good at helping uh, different writers, especially when I've worked as an editor, help them find the story that they're nibbling around the edge of but can't quite get to. Excellent. Um, I, I can't tell you why I'm good at that. Uh, <laughs> I, I really can't. Uh, that... I started out very structural. I'm a lot less structural now uh, as a writer, but I started out very structural. Okay. Um, the other thing would just be uh, I'm a massive fan of most forms of writing and entertainment. Uh, so, you know, I have the literature degree and heavy geek credentials, and, you know, I'm as happy with. Walden as I am with uh, comic books. Yeah, I noticed that your your list of, of favorite books and movies and so on is very eclectic, uh, yeah. and and not genre driven or genre based. You're you're kind of all over the map, which is very cool. And and I I love the the uh, kind of taking of different aspects of different genres and putting them together. And when I say that, I don't mean a mashup like. 
Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter. <laughs> you know, and, and no offense to that at all. I, I'm talking about a, a lot more subtle. Uh, sure, science fiction together. and horror, fantasy and fairy tales. I don't know something along. Right, lines. right. Well, I mean, you know, I, I have a, I have a, a science fiction novel that that needs a, another go around before it's ready to get out there. But it very much takes classic space opera adventure science fiction and brings a lot of the horror genres sensibilities to it okay and and when i say that i don't mean uh the direction of like alien what i mean more is there are things in horror that you can do that normally you can't do in science fiction such as well a good example would be uh the space opera genre is replete with archetypal characters. So you have your callow youth, your wise wizard, your, your kind of almost fantasy template. Sure, your, your, uh, your, your cocky renegade. Right, right. So, for example, can you take those kind of placeholders for real people and can you put real complex people with problems that would be readily identifiable today can, can you can you insert that in there can you take a fairly unlikable character which is very common in horror and interject that into the mix okay uh, you know science fiction adventure very much has a let's go on an adventure vibe to it right right you know, what happens when no one wants to work together or go on an adventure together okay um, so playing with those sorts of things, can you have an ending where a large number of major characters die? You know, again, very common in a horror book, very sure. uncommon in science fiction. Right, right, right. Uh, okay, so you're, you're, you're basically taking, taking the set pieces and, and flipping them upside down or turning them on their side or, or looking at them from a different perspective to see what can be gleaned. Uh, from a storyteller's perspective, I guess, uh, from those new perspectives, right? And, and and something I could never never say in a uh, in a pitch session or you know any type of real promotion for it is can I, can I take a Shakespearean play and do it in space? Oh hell yeah! Oh you got to do that. So that and that that's essentially uh, the 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 book is called Severed Dreams. Okay, uh, and it needs an, it needs another pass. Uh, I just got back some notes from. From some of the authors that I work with, um, but it is essentially my attempt to take a Shakespearean play and put it in kind of a galaxy-spanning space opera. Oh, very cool! Which which play? Uh, there there are a few uh, nibbles in in several directions, but the the primary influence would be Henry V. Oh, awesome! Fabulous! So, and and for for those of you out there who haven't read or seen Henry V, you need to watch a DVD uh, by Kenneth Braunau. Yes, the definitive. It will, it will blow you away. Yep, yep, best, yep. Best war movie ever written. Yeah, and, and, and wonderful, rich depth and range of characters, too. So there's a whole, there's a whole palette of, of characters to draw on, a rogues gallery. Excellent. Jerry, we're, we're running out of time, but i got to ask this last question. Sure. Um, one of the hopes of, of the roundtable is that we can share with our listeners ways to become better writers. 
Um, and, and in an interview you did with um, M.G. Ellington, you said, I defy anyone to put together a pro-rate anthology and not come out the other side a better writer. And I was wondering if you could just briefly expand a little on, on how editing an anthology refined your own writing skills specifically, and, and if you can recall anything that you that, that has actually specifically impacted your own writing. That would be very cool, too. Sure. Um, well, you know, first of all, for anyone interested, you know, it, it, it's difficult to get into a position where you are, in fact, editing a pro-rate anthology right off the bat. That's, my, my situation is very unusual. Sure. Um, that said, there are quite a few magazines like Clark's World, uh, Apex, Shroud, that are on a fairly regular basis looking for slush readers. You know, people to just read the unsolicited submissions that come in. Sure. And, uh, you know, for the first Dark Faith, we received about 600 submissions. Oh. And uh, we, we were open for five months, so 600 submissions in five months. And we knew up front, given that it had been nominated for a Stoker and a Nebula and a Black Quill and a couple other awards, that we were going to get more stories. And so uh, we reduced the submission period to one month for the second book. How many did you get? 700. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so that's 1,300 stories right there. Sure. And, uh, you know, if you were to do slush for a magazine, for example, uh, which I would highly recommend, you are reading so many stories that you very quickly start to unconsciously realize, hey, this is why I'm moving this one forward and sending this one back. Okay. You know, hey, this really works well. How are they doing that? Oh, this is what they're doing. You know, and then looking at another story and going, yeah, no way. <laughs> okay. You know, and, and after you've done it for a while, you get to the point, uh, and, and this, for, for unpublished folks, is the part that seems unfair. Uh, you get to the point where you can read a paragraph to a page, and you know whether it's worth finishing. Wow. You know, I, I sometimes you can read a sentence and know whether it's worth finishing. Okay, I can see that. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of components that go into that, uh, but you really start deconstructing what works for you, what meshes with what you do. Uh, you start looking at uh, a good example would be uh, Jennifer Pellin's uh, Nebula-nominated story, Ghosts of New York, okay. which deals with 9-11 and uh, the people who were uh, above the fire line who jumped. And you don't know that going into the story. And about two to three pages into the story, there was an iconic image in the story. And immediately I knew where we were. And all I could think of from that moment was it had been so artfully set up that I read the rest of the story thinking, don't fuck this up. Don't <laughs> fuck this up. And I, I'm reading and she's, it's just going and it's going. And I'm getting close to the end. I'm like, don't fuck this up. <laughs> you know, I get to the end. I pick up the phone. And uh, uh, I told Maurice, we're buying this now or I'm not doing this. <laughs> Apparently she didn't fuck it up. No, no, no. She, she hit it out of the park. Outstanding. Uh, yeah, and uh, we, we both agreed and we bought it that day. 
Well, that's invaluable advice, I think, actually. I, I found I, I do a lot of, uh, well, I used to anyway. I used to do a lot of, spend a lot of time on, on writing communities where writers are posting, you know, first drafts or, or works in progress for, for discussion. And I, I agree that, that as soon as your task is to not just consume and enjoy something, but also to decide, is this awesome? Is this something that is worthwhile that engages a whole different set of, of analytic components and, and impulses uh, in your own mind? I can only imagine after reading 1,300 stories, you get pretty good at, the, at those analytic uh, uh, tasks. Right. And, you know, and another, another uh, suggestion I could give you, uh, I started out with an online workshop called Critters. Okay. Uh, they have a website, critters.org, and they basically do science fiction, fantasy, horror, thriller, your different genre. Um, but basically, they're set up where you critique three stories a month, short stories, and in return for doing that, you can have critiques on your work. Excellent. And you, you usually end up with 10 to 15 different people giving you their opinion. Uh, and some opinions are more valuable than others. You have to kind of look at it that way. The site, I think, is... About 80% newer writer, about 20% uh, veteran writer. I, I'm still on there. I, I still do critiques for people. Okay. But what was extremely valuable for me was, as I started, and I started with no publishing credits uh, at this workshop, I started looking at the people who were selling regularly, and I put in time to try and do very detailed critiques of their work, ah. you know, when they would put it up. And because I put in the time and effort for them, they appreciated it so much that after a while, they were asking me, well, where's your stuff? You know, we, we need to help you along. Excellent. And eventually that led into, we have this private group over here. Why don't you come over here with us? <laughs> Excellent. So you were using their, their excellence in craft to not only hone and refine your ability to identify what makes them awesome, but also in the process, uh, a valuable networking tool that it got you into the inner circles of other, other opportunities. Absolutely. And you learn a lot by uh, having a dialogue back and forth about what, what works or doesn't work for you, what you think about craft. As we have found out here many times on the round table. Outstanding. That's critters.org is the name of that website? Yes, yes. Excellent. Friends, check it out. And Jerry, we, we, we could go on for a long time, um, but but my, my clock has literally blown a hole out the back wall and, and fled and, and taken my pens and pad with it. Uh, so we're, we're way out of time. Um, but I, I want to thank you. This, this has been uh, enlightening and intriguing, and I hope, uh, for our listeners at least, uh, a, a very informative uh, 20-ish uh, minutes of conversation. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, well, friends, uh, there you have it. Another 20 minutes, another batch of writerly goodness for your pocket. Take it with you and enjoy. Um, now, uh, uh, if, if you had a good time there, and I know you did, because I did, and I like to think that we resonate, you and I, um, uh, feel free to spread the word. Let folks know uh, what's going on uh, here at the round table. Uh, a review out on iTunes is always a delight. Uh, comments on the uh, post on the website, also a delight. And thank you so much to those of you who have done so. Uh, Mercy, Peter, Dan, so many uh, have been uh, making the scene there. 
um, and so many more that I didn't mention. Sorry. Uh, but that really helps uh, expand and continue the conversation. Drop us a line at the table at roundtablepodcast.com. Now, now, hold on to your bucket seats there, kids, because in a couple of days, we're going to come back. We're going to bring Jerry, have him sit in the big chair again, and we're going to workshop a tale. And we're going to take that analytic, structural asset of Jerry's and apply it to, to a writer who's, who's trying to turn a tale into literary gold. So please do consider joining us. Uh, until then, I know Brian would cajole all of you to go write, and I will tell you that you find what you're looking for. So by all means, look for amazing stuff. Not only have you earned it, but you will find it. Thanks so much, guys. Until then, you guys stay cool, stay frosty, stay awesome, and we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode is copyrighted 2012 by the Roundtable Podcast and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means don't sell it, but you can share it all you like. And you can even use pieces of it in your own derivative work, as long as you attribute us as the source and release the work under the same licensing terms. Theme music composed and performed by the talented Hepcats of Brotown. Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you'd like to be a guest writer or guest host, or learn more about the Roundtable Podcast, please visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com or visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast. Our Twitter tag is at writerspodcast or just send us an email at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.